Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Anthony Clark who's running for office in Illinois 7th Congressional District. Anthony Clark, thank you for joining me. No, thank you Edward. Uh, so great to be on. I'm so glad you reached out to me. Uh, looking forward to our conversation and shout out to everybody that's listening. You've stated that you're fighting to eliminate inequality. It's the main pledge that you put out there. It's at the top of your Twitter profile. You're fighting to eliminate inequality caused by white supremacy and capitalism. Why do you believe that capitalism is this root cause of inequality in America that you've talked about? And how do we fix this? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, thanks for, again, asking such a great question. Uh, so for me, you know, I identify as a black male. Uh, so I was essentially in America born into oppression. And I feel if you're an individual for whatever reason that's born into oppression, as you mature and as you grow up and you start to recognize how that form of oppression impacts your life, you either start asking questions and looking around and, and making connections with others who are experiencing oppression uh, because you wonder where it comes from. You know, why am I experiencing this? Why am I struggling? Why do I see other people that look like me struggling and other people that don't look like me struggling? Uh, so you either ask questions uh, in efforts to try to identify the root cause of the symptoms that you're facing because you want to end them, or essentially you just live. You know, you just live life and accept the oppression that exists, and it is what it is. You know, you accept status quo. Uh, so for me, growing up in a family who was tied to the civil rights movement, uh, you know, my mother and father, Blanche and Ronald Clark, together to this day over 40 years they're like my best friends you know they exposed me early on to revolutionary and revolutionary thoughts such as the black panther party in america uh chairman fred hampton you know angela davis uh asada shakur uh malcolm x martin luther king medgar evers all of these revolutionaries rosa parks throughout our history who did not accept status quo who do not accept things as they were uh they pushed for and fought to make a difference so for me Looking at my life, however long I have, 10 toes down uh, until somebody buries me, uh, what is the purpose of my life? If I'm not going to push to make it better, why am I here? And that's just for me. You know, those are the questions that I ask myself. What is the purpose of life if I'm not fighting to make life better for that next generation? And I think, you know, that ties into our parents, you know, our guardians, whoever raised us, people who have cared about us, who are in older generations essentially work hard to provide us with better, right? Uh, but what's happening is within America, you have the boomer generation that essentially experience better in regards to the economy than our current generation of millennials, than our current uh, generation of, you know, uh, Generation Z. We're struggling. Uh, that middle class uh, ideology, that middle class idea of, you know, you graduate from school, you get a good job in a factory or somewhere, uh, you buy a house with a white picket fence and a dog. That's no longer happening. Middle class doesn't exist in America. I truly believe that. You have kids now who are struggling with college debt, who are struggling with medical debt, who are essentially, they have to live with their parents or they have to have roommates for the rest of their lives. Uh, they can't afford to live life <laughs> because they're constantly fighting simply to survive. So all that coming together, I just kept asking myself, what is the reason? You know, what is the reason that black people experience oppression? What is the reason that women experience oppression? Uh, members of the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, individuals with disabilities, each and every one of us experiences forms of oppression, Jewish individuals, Muslim individuals, but those are symptoms. What is the root cause? And I feel like looking back at the founding of this nation, 
uh, we were founded upon the genocide of natives and the theft of their land. We were founded upon the enslavement of Africans and African descendants. And what was that for? That was for profit. So if you go back in our history, religion was utilized to justify this. Uh, you know, uh, nation building, nationalism was utilized to justify this. Uh, the thought and the idea of supremacy has always been utilized to justify oppression. I am white. I am a settler. Uh, you know, I am a colonizer. However you identify yourself, you are native. You are a savage. We need to save you. You are black. You are a savage. We need to save you. This land is ours. Those thought processes continue to this day in 2020, and it's all tied into capitalism, the ability to profit, uh, you know, to, the ability to have a free market in a world, in a country where so many individuals are not free. So everything that we face from racism to sexism to homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, classism, so on and so forth, is directly tied to capitalism because these are tools utilized to justify a bottom. These are tools utilized to justify 500,000 people being homeless in the United States. These are tools utilized to justify schools not being able to close right now during the coronavirus pandemic because we have homeless students and students that can't, can't afford to feed themselves if they're not in school for breakfast and lunch. Uh, you know, these are tools utilized to justify the, the uh, you know, the vast disparities that we exist in regards to unemployment rates, uh, primarily with people of color, a racist, uh, you know, criminal justice system with the war on drugs that disproportionately impacts black and brown individuals. Uh, so I could continue on, you know, but essentially we are facing symptoms and instead of continuing to react to a symptom, instead of feeding the homeless, we want to end homelessness. You know, instead of reacting to gun violence, which involves police violence, we want to end it. Uh, so that's the thought process. Let's attack the root cause issue of capitalism, which places profit before people, and let's come up with solutions that aren't reactionary, but are proactive and revolutionary. This drive to have these proactive solutions that go out there instead of just focusing on reactive approaches to dealing with the inequality that exists out there is why you describe yourself as a democratic socialist. Socialism has often been heavily criticised. I'm sure you face this while running for office. And if you are successful in the primary election on Tuesday, I'm sure your opponents will continue to use this against you by criticising socialism claiming that, for example, when you look at places like Venezuela or the Soviet Union, that it wasn't as successful as you claim that this could be. As someone who's a democratic socialist, how do you convince people that the ideological aims that you're fighting for aren't just right, but they actually work in this system? They are the most appropriate course of action going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think... At the basic level, we understand in America that we already have socialism already exists, uh, particularly for our corporations. You know, we have socialism for the wealthy and, and poverty, uh, you know, for the working class. So right now, again, with the coronavirus pandemic that has existed, our Dow, you know, the Dow Jones dropped 2,300 points a few days ago. And somehow, magically, our government came up with $1.5 trillion to infuse uh, into the system. Uh, so we don't ask how we're going to pay for it. Uh, when we're saving corporations and large banks. Uh, so socialism exists already for the wealthy. And I think what we have to look at as well is anything that has supported the working class, whether it's social security, uh, you know, whether we're looking at our healthcare system, that is socialism as well. Our educational system is socialism. 
you know, public good uh, for people. So when we're discussing this, what I try to do is share a truth and share my truth. You know, I served in the military, what I call the poverty draft, uh, because, again, what our military is, is a, a war uh, created by the wealthy that are fought for and died for by the poor. But what do they dangle in front of you, you know, our military? They dangle free health care. They dangle in front of us guaranteed employment. They dangle in front of us a guaranteed opportunity to gain food. Uh, we have housing and shelter, and they're going to pay for education. But they attach war monitoring and the military-industrial complex to this. But clearly, the trillions of dollars that we spend in our military-industrial complex, we are offering in the military what we are fighting for and have been fighting for on the ground. You know, health care is a human right, housing is a human right, a federal job guarantee, a livable wage, ending food insecurity, all these issues, paying for college and trade, you know, universal education, all these issues that we're fighting for on the ground, if we truly succeed and obtain them, we wouldn't necessarily be in the current situation that we're in with this pandemic to where so many of these ills that exist are being exposed. Uh, we're not prepared. We don't have enough tests. Tests are unaffordable. Well, guess what? If we had universal health care, that wouldn't be the issue. Uh, looking at our educational systems where schools aren't closing, they're possibly going to be spreading the, the virus because of social interaction. We wouldn't be facing these issues if we had paid family leave, if individuals were making a livable wage, if housing was a human right. So we wouldn't have to be concerned with our homeless populations right now uh, that are on the street, how they're going to maintain and take care of themselves, particularly uh, winter time is not over. So we still have harsh conditions in certain areas. So we share this truth, you know, and what I wanted to say was going back to the military, when I joined the military, it was interesting. I served with people that I'd never seen a black person before. You know, uh, they came from like extremely rural areas, um, never had any type of urban experiences, never saw a person of color, and they had a lot of biases. Many of them were racist. But one thing that we connected to, because we still had to work together, is the struggle. Struggle is a universal language. And I learned that in the military. I could meet someone, we had nothing in common, but they experienced poverty, right? They experienced struggle. Uh, I traveled to other countries. Uh, I was in you know, other continents, and I was in Turkey, I was in Iraq, I was in Afghanistan, and saw struggle, and how struggle is universal. We don't have to speak the same actual language to recognize poverty, to recognize uh, how it impacts society. So understanding that, I think that's how we move people. Uh, unfortunately, it took a pandemic for many people to wake up. Someone tweeted, and it was hilarious, uh, but so, so appropriate. He said, everybody's a social pandemic hits. Uh, but you make these connections and share your truth within the struggle. I struggled because of these reasons. This is what I experienced. What has your struggle been? You share that and make those connections. Then we take it further, and let's talk about the policies and ideologies that we could push forward that would truly lead to uh, elimination of many of our struggles or a decrease in many of our struggles and empower the working class that continues to falter. So we don't have to go to the door and say, hey, I'm a socialist, or hey, I'm a democratic socialist, or hey, vote for Bernie Sanders. We go to the doors, we make calls, and we meet people to share our truths and share that universal language of struggle. And then when we make that connection, we talk about policies and ideologies that could be utilized within this class warfare, the oppressed versus the oppressors, to win. And then on the back end, people realize, oh, wow, I may be a democratic socialist. These policies that I'm pushing for are socialist. Uh, you know, so that's that's how we try to engage. You mentioned there about how people from different backgrounds that you served with all have some connection there to the issue of poverty, whether that's 
that they've experienced themselves, someone in their family or their friend group has experienced that. And that's reflected in how nearly 80% of Americans, it was found in a recent study, have reported living at some point paycheck to paycheck. And that's clearly an issue that exists because of the economic system that is out there, whether that's the wages that they're receiving or, in the case of some of them, not receiving because they're on you know, zero-hour contracts, they're not getting a living wage. What do you believe is the solution to addressing that? Because surely it's much bigger than just inequality here. It's clearly a fundamental problem at the core of society and would require some significant restructuring of the economic structure in America. Yeah, no, I mean, no question. I think, as you stated, it's part of the soul of this country, again, a capitalistic mindset and an individualistic mindset to where you have so many individuals who believe in the mantra of grab yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, they push that out constantly, but they don't even recognize, again, I'm a history teacher, no one born in this country literally grabs themselves up by the bootstraps. Uh, because when you look at collective movements, uh, just as wealth has been passed down throughout the generations, so has poverty and despair. We're still being impacted by the legacy of slavery. We're still being impacted by the legacy of native genocide. We're still being impacted by the legacy of, of you know, internment camps for, you know, the Japanese, Japanese Americans and so on and so forth. These legacies play a role in preventing certain demographics of people as a collective to build generational wealth. We have 76% of working class Americans right now living check to check. Uh, there are studies that show by 2050, black Americans alone will have a median wealth of zero, of zero. Uh, these are real issues that exist. So when we look at our, our minimum wage, which has not been tied to inflation, so cost of living continues to increase, inflation impacts, and you still literally have people that prior to this past year were making $7 an hour, basically, you know, <laughs> cannot live on $7 an hour. You know, uh, our uh, minimal wage has increased. People have fought. Uh, we're supposed to go to $15 minimum wage uh, by 2025, I believe. But even still, $15 is not enough. So we have to completely look at and restructure our economy uh, to no longer place our large corporations at the top provide them with tax breaks, uh, you know, wealth tax that exists right now to where you have millionaires and billionaires paying less in taxes than thousandaires and a hundredaires. Uh, so we have to have a progressive tax code, uh, which essentially uplifts the middle class. We have to have a livable wage tied to inflation, uh, which basically uplifts the middle class. Uh, we have to have protections built into our economy, like paid family leave for all. Uh, because right now we're facing that, you know, our Democrats, they just acquiesced uh, with the Republican Party to come out with a stimulus package. But literally so many loopholes exist to where 80 percent of the individuals that are now impacted by this pandemic will not be able to uh, take advantage of paid family leave. Uh, so it's huge issues that exist. And fundamentally, we have to move away from an individualistic mindset. We have to move away of saying that, oh, you can simply grab yourself up by the bootstraps because data shows us that historically, if you're born into poverty, more than likely you're going to remain in poverty. If you're born into wealth, more than likely you're going to remain in wealth. And how has wealth been created and how has poverty been created? It's been through oppression. You don't, any billionaire in America, you don't just make a billion dollars, you take it. Uh, it's through exploitation. It's through, um, you know, oppression of working, of workers in the working class. 
So we have to fundamentally change because the working class drives the economy. Right now, with this pandemic existing, we're seeing restaurants vacant. We're seeing Chinatown and other areas vacant. Uh, you know, the economy is struggling. And it's not because billionaires aren't spending money. It's because the working class aren't working and the working class aren't out there engaging and spending money. So we have to prop up the working class. We can no longer afford to give bailouts to corporations, bailouts to the wealthy. We have to provide bailouts to the working class and we have to pass legislation for the working class like college and trade for all, uh, cancellation of student debt, Medicare as a human right, uh, health care as a human right, uh, you know, housing as a human right, federal jobs guarantees for anybody that wants to work. Uh, we have to do this. We have to do this so we no longer find ourselves in situations to where our economy is near collapse. We've talked about the issue of economic inequality and how that is seeping through every area of society from the way that people are able to live their lives to the policies that exist and are put forward by the government. After high school, students who often want to seek further education, they find that the cost of secondary education is quite prohibitive. It can be incredibly expensive. And you proposed the one-time policy of student debt cancellation and the expansion of the U.S. education system to include tuition-free public college as a way of addressing that issue. Because it's been shown that by having a degree, it can drastically improve Americans' life chances. How much damage do you believe has been done by having this system in place that prices Americans out of an education that can further their life? Oh, I mean, tremendous damage because, again, the middle class drives our economy. And because of our educational system that exists, which actually a current presidential candidate played a role in, Joe Biden, he made it impossible to place student debt within, you know, bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy uh, laws. But <laughs> going back, not to be too petty, it's played a huge role. I'm a high school teacher. So even at the most basic nuanced level, when I'm dealing with high school seniors, who want to go to college, there's a multitude of reasons that so many don't or want to go to a trade program because of, again, it's not affordable. Or they find funding or they find the money for it, but once they graduate, they owe $50,000, um, How are you going to pay for that? You can no longer get into the workforce when you have companies that are looking for experience. Uh, they're looking for you to enter with experience. They're looking for you to enter and work your way up it's impossible to do that if you have to immediately start paying $500, $600 a month to pay off your student loans, which you probably, based upon uh, interest rates, will be paying for the rest of your life. Uh, then you couple that, again, with lack of livable wages. Everything's interconnected. You couple that with, you know, discriminatory banking practices. How can the middle class create a life for themselves if we're constantly operating in debt? We don't have the ability to launch ourselves into the world and pursue our dreams and aspirations and work our way up because we're constantly in debt. It's a huge pervasive issue that exists. I think the average student debt is over $30,000 now uh, across the nation. So many individuals are choosing to forego college because they cannot afford it. They have to get to work right away uh, because of medical debt, because of children that are coming into this world uh, that they have to pay for because we don't have universal pre-K, we don't have universal child care. That's extremely expensive. So all these issues are interconnected. But I guarantee you, I truly believe that if we, again, bail out our working class, if we eliminate college debt, now you have that $500, $600 that was going to Navion, that was going to Sally Mae, 
Now that money is in the community. Now that money is going into the infrastructure because individuals are spending more. Now individuals have time to attend college, to attend trade, make connections to growing industries because we know our coal industry is dying out. We know we're trying to get on fossil fuels when we look at climate change. So clean energy is going to create new job opportunities. But in order to place people within those job opportunities, we have to have the ability to go to college, to go to trade, and learn how to uh, do the job. So it's a nuanced issue. It's an interconnected issue. But we truly believe that, again, if we work with our working class and if we provide them with opportunities uh, to pursue their dreams and aspirations without having to worry about crippling debt, uh, you're going to see uh, an economy that's thriving. And we truly believe that. Another area where Americans can often find themselves with crippling debt is in the healthcare world. And this is an issue that's particularly important right now with the coronavirus outbreak that's affecting America. You pledged to fight for Medicare for all. And that's clearly a really important issue right now. Americans are too afraid to get tested due to the fears that they could literally be made bankrupt if they seek medical treatment in the United States. Why is Congress not ensuring everyone in America has access to affordable health care? Because, for example, from a tweet I saw recently, you're only as healthy as the waiter who serves you. You're only as healthy as the Amazon worker who prepares your delivery. You're only as healthy as the employee in the store where you're buying your groceries. So why is America not ensuring that everyone has health care? Because this isn't just an issue where the rich benefit from having health care that's affordable. Everyone benefits from having a healthy society. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. But unfortunately, I think in America, that's not the narrative or the thought process that exists. Uh, we have a, essentially a trickle down economy to where there's a large portion of individuals within the society that believe if we have billionaires, if the top is thriving, then everyone else will thrive because that success and that money will trickle down. So, again, that allows them to justify placing profit before people. And we allow insurance industries uh, because, of course, in America, corporations are viewed as people. Uh, that's why we're fighting to try to overturn Citizens United and lobbyists. Uh, they infuse millions and millions of dollars into our political process uh, to influence politicians uh, to maintain the thought that corporations are people and corporations should have more of a say than actual people do. Uh, so it's the trickle-down economy thought process that exists that we have to upend uh, because from top down is not working. Uh, we truly believe, again, it ties back into what we talked about earlier, grab yourself up by the bootstrap. Well, you know, people, people really believe, well, if you work hard, if you grab yourself up by the bootstrap, you can afford health insurance, you know, and if you can't afford health insurance, that's your fault. That's really what people put out there. And as you stated, I mean, that's a brilliant tweet. I, I hope I can find it and retweet it. We're only as healthy as our working class. We're only as healthy as our service industry. And people do not understand that. I mean, look at the airports right now to where individuals cannot fly due to the travel, travel restrictions that have been um, been put on by our, you know, our federal government led by Trump. Uh, again, look at our service industry. So many people now are entering into the grocery stores. They're relying on our cashiers. They're relying on our stoppers. They're relying on our baggers, our store managers uh, to help them. You know, hopefully they're not hoarding, but help them get their tissue, their hand sanitizer, uh, you know, their Vienna sausages or whatever the hell they, they're going to eat while they hunker in. So we have to, again, change that mindset. And I believe it was Lyndon B. Johnson. This was so interesting because so much is driven by the media. 
so much is driven by language, how we manipulate and create biases. But I believe Lyndon B. Johnson once said that if you can convince the poorest white man that he's better than a rich black man, he will not only support you, but he will empty his pockets for you. And we have too many individuals right now that are voting and supporting ideologies and policies that are against their self-interest. So it's about us educating individuals. It's about us being boots to the ground and working to create that solidarity that we have seen in the past. In the 60s, organizations like the Black Panther Party, they joined forces with organizations like the Young Lords, who were uh, Puerto Rican, predominantly Puerto Rican and impoverished. So you had the Black Panther Party, Black and impoverished, the Young Lords, Puerto Rican and impoverished, and then they joined the Young Patriots, White and impoverished. Because they recognize, again, it is class warfare, this is class struggle, but let's unite, come together, bring our diverse experiences, and work as one unit uh, to attack capitalism. Uh, we have to do it, because right now, again, that's the only reason. There's only one reason we're not, we haven't gone to health care as a human right, Medicare for all, and that is because of money and politics, because of the insurance companies, because of you know these large corporations, big pharma, that are going to be impacted and their profit margins are going to decrease. And then if their profit margins decrease, let's be honest, our current politics profit margins are going to decrease. There's no other reason it doesn't exist beyond the fact that it's a capitalistic society and profit is being placed before people, similar to gun rights and gun lobbyists and so on and so forth. There's reasons that gun violence it still exists at the epidemic level that it does because of money and politics. You're running for office in Illinois on a platform that calls for gun reform. Illinois has a unique place in the debate over gun control and reform on gun control legislation, because often when individuals call for gun control, pro-Second Amendment activists and organizations like the NRA will cite Illinois and say the gun control doesn't work because there's gun control in Illinois and there's a lot of gun violence that will happen in the state. These are the claims that they will make. How do you respond to those individuals? And on the issue of gun control, do you think it's hypocritical for Republicans to spend their time claiming they're pro-life when they're standing idly by as tens of thousands of Americans are dying due to gun violence every year? Oh, no question. And I think the issue with, you know, gun violence and the effort, because it is an epidemic, uh, you know, we have to look at it as a public health crisis and infuse trillions of dollars into our CDC to study it and address it. Uh, because when we talk about gun violence, we have to understand that that includes police violence, that includes white supremacy and domestic terrorism, that includes, uh, you know, relationship, uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence. Uh, of course, in regards to also, you know, person to person street violence as well. So it's a nuanced issue and it's an epidemic that exists. But again, I'm always going to go back to the issues are interconnected. And I think by design, what our politicians fail to do often purposely is go beyond simply in order to address gun control. We have to you know, look at legislation. We have to look at policies that are directly targeting gun control. Of course, we have to close loopholes. Of course, I believe that we have to eliminate assault weapons. I used to carry them in war, and they are weapons of war. When I served in the military, we have to take money out of politics, again, because that plays a role. But we also have to look at how poverty impacts gun violence. If we truly want to eliminate and decrease gun violence, again, I'm going to go back to health care, college, housing, employment, and livable wages. Because what often occurs is in communities like uh, Chicago, where you have large urban sectors, they're devoid of opportunity. They're devoid of investment. So when you have individuals, hyper-local, uh, 
essentially within a bottleneck because often indivisible walls are, are, are erected to where you can't leave a certain community a certain area and you're fighting for limited resources, you're going to see an increase in violence. So we not only have to push for legislation that takes money out of politics, we not only have to push for legislation uh, you know, that closes these loopholes that exist, that allows individuals to go to you know, gun shows, so on and so forth, purchase weapons and bring them into other states. I mean, it's, it's pervasive. I, my father, for example, I mentioned him earlier, grew up on the south side of Chicago, and you can literally Google this and look it up. He told me, I'll never forget, he told me when he was a kid, loads of trains used to come in to Chicago loaded up with weapons, and the trains would be unlocked. So literally, the government would bring trains into the urban communities, into black communities, with guns, and allow individuals to break into these trains and take the guns. And lo and behold, about four years ago, I see an article in the paper that says, with as much technology as we have, this is 2020, so this was 2015, we're still having trains coming into our communities with guns, and somehow people are breaking into these trains and stealing weapons. Uh, so I believe it's by design. I don't think our government truly, and this is just me, again, making nice statements, they don't truly want to solve the problem because to them, the majority of the individuals that are impacted by the problem are poor. The majority of the individuals impacted by the problem are working class. It's not a, it's not a, it's not their problem at the top, uh, but it's all of our problems. So again, we have to look at it as a holistic issue. Uh, we have to bring a holistic approach to it. So not only pushing for stronger legislation, but also looking at how employment, how housing, how medical debt, how school debt, how lack of infrastructure investment, school closures, mental health facility closures, because so many of our youth are dealing with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, so on and so forth, that all plays a role. How the war on drugs, how the prison industrial complex, everything plays a role in maintaining pervasive gun violence. So if we truly want to address it, we have to look at it from a, you know, a, a, a broad, broad scope, truly push for systemic change, stop just treating the symptoms. Finally, the Democratic primary is on Tuesday in Illinois, and hopefully with the issues that are going on with the coronavirus outbreak, there won't be any delays to that. But what would be your message to voters as they're thinking a few days away from going to the polls? What would your message be to voters to convince them that you are the candidate that they should be backing in this race? Definitely. So I think across the board, you know, voters, whether they're in the Illinois 7th Congressional District or beyond, uh, whether your, you know, primary date is next week or in a couple months, we have an opportunity in 2020 not to meet our communities and our political parties where they are. We have an opportunity to be extremely bold and fight to take our communities and political parties to where they need to be. And when we're talking about America and the wealthiest nation in the world, no one should be too poor to live. But they are because the oppression that we face within this class struggle, the oppressed versus the oppressors is by design. Uh, this wealth gap continues to grow to where the top one percent owns greater wealth and hoards greater wealth than the bottom 90. That should not exist. So when you're looking at a race like ours, when you're looking uh, in Illinois 7 and hopefully punch number 33 on March 17th, understand who you're pushing and understand who you're voting for. You're voting for fighters. We're boots to the ground on a daily basis. We're rocking the boat. We're pushing for revolutionary change because better is not good enough. Voting blue no matter who is not good enough. If one person is dying due to poverty, that is not their own design, that is not by their own choice, that is one person too many. So that's what we push out there. We're challenging people. Ask yourself, look yourself in the mirror, ask yourself, what are you willing to risk and sacrifice for change? Because 
any change that's worthwhile is going to be a fight. This isn't easy. You have to put your privilege to the side and truly push. And that's what we're doing. And we challenge others to do it as well. Uh, you know, our website is voteanthonyclark.com. That's C-L-A-R-K without an E, voteanthonyclark.com. Our Twitter, Instagram, AnthonyBClark20. And we just say, let's get it. You know, let's fight. Anthony Clark, thank you for joining me and good luck on Tuesday. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Love it. Can't wait to hear it. And we're going to definitely push it out. That was Anthony Clark, who's running for office in Illinois' 7th Congressional District. You can find out more about him on Twitter at AnthonyVClark20 and at www.VoteAnthonyClark.com. If you want to help ensure that we can keep giving a platform to progressive individuals and organisations and a voice to the voiceless, you can now support the Hard to Report podcast by giving $5, 10 or $20 a month to the show at patreon.com forward slash the Hardy Report. Also, if you would like to recommend this podcast by submitting reviews online or by sharing it with friends and families, we'd really appreciate it. That's all for this week. What did you think about the interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Until next time. Goodbye.